Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. We're going through the book of James. And you can open it up. You can open up your Bible. You can turn on your device and go to James chapter 1. And here's what we've learned so far. Now, I'm going to start by just giving us kind of a long on-ramp to set up the couple of verses that we're covering today. And it's, there's going to be a little bit of review in this on-ramp. But what we've been learning so far can be summed up by a statement that Dallas Willard made that said, where he said, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. The most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. The ultimate overarching goal for your entire life, for everything you do, is to become a spiritually mature person in Christ. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, everyone, people often ask that question, what is God's will for your life? Well, you have a lot of freedom, actually. There's a lot of things that you could do, as long as you have the overarching goal correct, and that is a very spiritual word that we say is called sanctification. That means you're just growing up in Christ. That means you're just becoming more like Jesus. That's the ultimate will for your life. And Paul says so much in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 when he says, For this is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. That's what God's desire is for your life. And he's always giving you opportunities to work on it. God will use your marriage to help you become more like Christ. God will use your job to help you become more like Christ. God will use your neighbors to help you become more like Christ. God will use that person that annoys you to help you become more like Christ. And we're learning here in James that God will use your trials and your sufferings to help you become more like Christ. But we need something. Because just going through trials... And enduring difficult trials is not enough. You need God's perspective on what he's doing. So last week we talked about the need for asking God for wisdom to help you discern what he's doing in these trials. Because if you never ask God what he's up to when in your trials, you're going to keep read, he's going to keep trying to bring the same thing to your attention in different ways. So our job is when we are facing difficulty, when we're facing difficult circumstances and trials, to ask God, how are you shaping me into the image of your son through this circumstance? What are you up to? How are you using this? Not get me out of this circumstance, but okay, I don't want to waste pain. What are you up to? Instead of looking for an easy way out, we now understand that God is leveraging that trial to mature us. And we train ourselves to ask him what he's up to and to listen prayerfully. Now, the benefit of coming, becoming a mature and complete person in Christ, which is what this leads to, James tells us, is that if you're mature and complete in Christ, you will lack nothing. 
James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 and 13, I've learned to be content in every situation. Whether I have a lot or whether I have nothing, I've learned to be content. Because Paul was being made mature and complete in Christ, and he knows that because of that, he lacked nothing. Part of being mature in Christ is knowing that God will not allow you to lack anything you need or anything you want as as you mature in Christ. And your wants align more and more with what God desires you to want. That promise is everywhere in Scripture. That's Psalm 8411. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who love him. From those who walk uprightly. Psalm 23.1 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Matthew 6.25-34 through 34, As you focus on the kingdom, God gives you everything that you need. If you're mature and complete, you've learned to trust that if your life focuses on the kingdom of God and becoming a spiritually mature person, it will free you from making the pursuit of provision the focus of your life. It means that you no longer need your life to look a certain way in order to be happy because you have all that you need in Christ. If you focus on God and all that he's given you in Christ, you will always be content. And the opposite of that is true. If you focus on your earthly circumstances, you will always be discontent. That's why grumbling in Scripture is a signal that God is still maturing you in some area. Because grumbling means you're not paying attention to God's goodness already in your life. You're looking for more. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 10 and 11, Paul's talking about the... The examples that we can learn from looking at the Israelites in the wilderness, we can learn from the ways that they kind of messed that up. And one of the things the Israelites were famous for in the wilderness was grumbling because they weren't content with the way that God was caring for them. God freed them and got them out of slavery and was moving them towards their own land, their own place. He freed them from the oppression and the cruelty of Egyptian slavery, and they saw a little bit of danger coming at them and said, did you, did you bring us out here just to kill us? Send us back. I'd rather go back and go back to Egypt. The Egyptians grumbled because they weren't content with the way that God was feeding them. He was sending miraculous manna from heaven that nourished them and gave them everything that they needed. And they were grumbling about that. They were grumbling about their leadership. The Israelites grumbled even though God gave them all they needed. So 1 Corinthians 10, 10, and 11, Paul addresses this. He says, do not grumble as some of them by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples 
and were written down as us for a warning on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So he's saying, pay attention. When you grumble, it means you're not content with God. You're looking for contentment in your circumstances. Paul in Philippians 4, 11 and 13 says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I do all things through him who gives me strength. Now knowing that, that's all by way of setup for three verses that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read it, and we're going to discuss it for just a little bit. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This passage is all about where your focus lies. In this particular situation, it's financial. Now, this is really, really important, because we're going to screw this up. Christians have figured out ways to screw this up. It is not saying that being poor is inherently good. And it's not saying that being wealthy is inherently bad. Money is morally neutral. You can be poor and still be spiritually arrogant. And you can be wealthy and still be spiritually humble. God knows how to use your poverty to glorify himself and grow his kingdom. And God knows how to use your wealth to glorify himself and grow his kingdom. What this passage speaks to is where your focus, your attention, your goals, and your motivations lie. James is speaking to believers in poverty, and he says, in the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter how humble your circumstances might appear to be, because that's not the ultimate reality. In the kingdom of God, you are exalted. In the kingdom of God, you are royalty. In the kingdom of God, you are a son or daughter of the Most High. You have been adopted by a father who can speak a world and universes come into existence. And what that means is when it comes to your needs, if you focus on God and his kingdom, your bank account isn't limited to what's in it. God himself has told you in scripture that if you focus on him and his kingdom, he'll take care of the rest. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. Because notice that I'm not saying that God's going to make you rich. What I am saying is you are exalted. 
and you will be cared for, not based on your bank account, but on God's resources. And he's got some resources. In the kingdom of God, gold is used as pavement. Revelations 21 says that the streets of gold in heaven, when they come down to earth and cover over the earth, when God recreates the earth, the streets are so, such pure gold, they look transparent. That's pavement. God has gold floating around in outer space. Money is not an issue. There's a, an asteroid called Eros that scientists predict contains 20 billion tons of gold. It's a rock floating in outer space that is worth more than 20,000 times everything that is sold and created on earth this year. Resources are not an issue for our God. And when you serve a God like that, socioeconomic status becomes irrelevant. Those living in poverty can exalt in the fact that they are sons and daughters of the Most High, and those living in wealth are freed from the frantic, frantic grasping of producing more wealth. And what this passage is saying is your status is not linked to the things that the world measures. So don't allow those things to be the priorities of your life, the things that you spend your life going after. Uh, one of my favorite churches to visit, Times Square Church, and the reason why I like it is because most churches will find a way to judge one another. We will find a way to judge one another. Um, if you're poor, you'll judge the wealthy. If you're wealthy, you'll judge the poor. If, you're, if the personality of the church doesn't measure how you think a, spir a spiritual person should look, you'll judge that church. If you have a certain style about you and come off that feels more genuine and you talk to someone who's genuine, genuinely more perky and happy and cheerful, those two people will find a way to judge one another. You're fake. You're too happy. No, I'm actually genuinely happy. You're just miserable. You will, we will find a way to judge one another. And a big way that we judge one another as a church because it is easy for an impoverished person to be arrogant about their poverty. And it's easy for a wealthy person to be arrogant about their wealth. And so we look at each other and we never come together. One of the things I love about Times Square Church is there are dozens of cultures and nations represented in this, it's in this one church building. And Every time I'm worshiping there, the, the row in front of me has someone that I could see. This person probably works on Wall Street, dressed to the nines, amazing. And this person might be homeless, and they're worshiping God together. It doesn't matter. They don't see it. There is no distinction. That's the kingdom. God might change your circumstances on earth, and he might not. It doesn't matter. You're home. It doesn't matter. We're family. 
It doesn't matter. We're not thinking about your socioeconomic status. It's not even a category for us. You're a brother or you're a sister. Here's what I see. I, because I appreciate what God's doing in this church family. Because when you come into the kingdom, it's different than when you're living out in the world. And here's what I see at Southside. In the world, the wealthier you are, the less generous you are. That's just a fact. In the kingdom, the wealthier you are, the more generous you are. And some of the most generous people are the people that have the means to do it. In the world, the less wealth you have, the harder you are on yourself. The more you feel like you need to fix your circumstances. In the kingdom, the less you have, the more exalted and confident you are in your status as an adopted child of God. Just makes no difference. You don't even see it. If we're in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, we don't even recognize the differences. In a Spirit-empowered church, socioeconomic status becomes irrelevant and everyone's taken care of. So if James is telling us that the pursuit of wealth is fleeting, what does that free us to focus on? Becoming more mature in Christ, which was the first two sections that we covered the last week of James. They're all related. It frees us to focus on our character. Now, since this passage in particular is talking about poverty and wealth, I want to end with some practical guidelines here. So these are in your notes. We're going to give you three practical guidelines. The question is, is it okay for a Christian to enjoy material goods? I think this is where there's some readily available application. Is it okay for a Christian to enjoy material goods? I have a Valkyrie. I rode my Valkyrie here today. And I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoy learning how to practice taking care of my motorcycle, even though I'm really bad at it. It's fun learning how to do it. There's other things that I really enjoy that are material goods. Is that okay? Or do I just need to like go sell my Valkyrie because I'm enjoying it too much? Is it okay for a Christian to enjoy material goods? Let's just get very practical. The first fill in the blank is yes, and also, so yes, it is good, but there's a way to do it. There's a way to enjoy the things that God has given us. So your first bullet point is lesser goods ought to be loved less than greater goods. That's, I didn't make that statement up. A million people have said that, but it's, helpful. Lesser goods ought to be loved less than greater goods. So there's a priority. There's different levels of the ways that you enjoy things. This is the lesson of the rich young ruler who went up to Jesus and said, I want to be a disciple. What does that look like? I've, I've been keeping all the commandments. And Jesus knew that he hadn't been keeping all the commandments. So he went to the thing that Jesus went to the thing that he knew this person loved more than Jesus. He went to the thing that he knew this person wouldn't give up. And he said, "Um, there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And the guy wouldn't do it. Lesser goods ought to be loved less than greater goods. And he walked away and Jesus didn't chase him. 
Jesus is interesting. Sometimes it feels like the standard is really low. And sometimes it feels like the standard is really high when you listen to him in the Gospels. And he never apologizes for it. He never lessens the standard when it feels absurdly high. That feels absurdly high to me. And he never raises the standard when it feels absurdly low. Every person is treated differently. And he never explains himself. And he rarely answers questions directly. But that's one of those things that Jesus said that's hard to understand. Now, we know in that passage in particular, Jesus is talking about it requires the faith of a child to enter the kingdom. And he was making a point that you can't depend on your wealth for provision. You have to depend on me, which means you have to hold everything with open hands. That's how you come into the kingdom. Because every time that story is told, the other thing that's told around that story is the fact that um, it requires the faith of a child to come into the kingdom. So that's the context of that. But the point for us is, is there anything that you love more than Jesus? And if it is, then you, you have to be willing to give it up. The second thing is keep in mind that we are on a journey towards a greater destination. Enjoy the scenery without losing your longing for a true home. So, imagine yourself on a train and just imagine that the train is really nice and you have really, really delicious meals and you're looking out the windows and it's beautiful like mountain range scenery. You're like going through the Swiss Alps on a train. I think there's actually a train that you can do that, which would be amazing and beautiful. You're on this train but you're going somewhere. Where you're going actually should be what you are most looking forward to enjoying. It's where your heart is. But at the same time, you can enjoy the scenery. You can enjoy the delicious food. You can enjoy the provision of the train and the train ride. But that's not where you're headed. So while we're on earth, enjoy the scenery, but don't lose your longing for our true home. And our true home is actually a person because the best part of heaven is not that we're going to live on a newly created earth with gold as pavement, but the best part of heaven is Jesus and that we're going to be with him. That's why when Jesus talks about eternal life, he says it starts now with me. Eternal life is not a destination, it's a quality. So it's possible to enjoy my Valkyrie both looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back and also worshiping him saying, I love this. I love this bike and I'm so grateful for you. It's possible for me to enjoy him through my Valkyrie. And finally, earthly riches pale in comparison to receiving life more richly from Christ. That's your last. There's three of them in that little statement. Three blanks. Earthly riches pale in comparison to receiving life more richly from Christ. The way that we receive more life from Christ and the riches that we have available to us in Christ, because the gospel can be summed up in Ephesians when Paul says, 
um, everything that's true in Christ is now true about you. In him you also. That's the gospel. In him you also. When you have a relationship with Christ, when you're united together with Christ, everything that is his is yours, which means everything. This is some pretty deep waters here, but that's why Paul would say, all things are yours. Why are you arguing, Corinthians, about all this stuff? All things are yours. The kingdom is yours. Kara has reminded me several times, take joy, take heart, little flock. It's, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Everything you need is yours in Christ. The way that that's been made available to us is because Christ became poor. He became intentionally impoverished. He came to earth to live this perfect life and to demonstrate what does it look like to be content and more important to trust and have dependence on the Father no matter what your circumstance looks like, even if it looks like hanging on a cross. And because he went to the cross for us and because he died for us, we are invited to this eternal life with him through faith in him, this eternal life that starts today. That's a quality that's God present to you through his spirit. That's eternal life. It begins now and extends on into everlasting eternity. So that when we put our faith in Christ, that's ours. And it puts us all on equal ground. Puts us all on the same ground. That's all I got. Continue to read James. Continue to, to reflect and think about this. And I would, I would just encourage you to spend some time quiet and alone with your Bible, looking at James and asking, asking the Spirit if there are things that you missed, if there are things that he wants you to learn from this, if there's a little bit more energy to some of the things that you heard than others, and focus on that. Because the older I get, the less I'm convinced that the dynamism of the speaker means a hill of beans. Because when I preach, there's two sermons being taught. One is the things I'm saying, and one is the things the Spirit of God is saying to you through the things I'm saying. That's what you want to begin to listen for. What is the Spirit of God saying to you as you're hearing these words. Let's pray. Father, one clear word from you can bring life to us in ways that nothing else can. Your word produces, as I heard someone else say so so well, all manner of vitality in our lives. Your word, your instruction frees us from pursuits that are dead ends. Your word frees us from chasing after things that will never completely fill us or make us content. 
your word prevents us from believing the lies that we're surrounded with in our culture that tells us if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to be content, you need more of this. And whatever this is, if it isn't you, it's not true. Help us to become a church, a people, individuals who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for you. Order our loves correctly. Help us to learn how to not just make vows of poverty the easy way out, but to learn how to live with the abundance that you've provided for us. But always with you at the end of those things. Guard us from the fine the fine-edged line of enjoying things more than Christ. So that however much or however little we own on earth, it is all surrendered to you. At any given moment, we'll give up anything for you. And then our loves will be properly ordered. These are not easy things. We need your spirit to help us understand and apply. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.